0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now
1: at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show, sort of. We've got something special and unusual for you this week. Sarah Cliff, my colleague who is my co-host on the fabulous podcast, The Weeds, went and interviewed Sylvia Matthews Burwell, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Secretary Burwell has, I think, maybe the hardest job in government, certainly one of them. She runs Medicare, she runs Medicaid, she runs Obamacare, and the many, 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 many other health programs the government has. In in this interview, Sarah talks to her about all of that, about what she's learned in management, about how she runs these programs, about what is going on with Obamacare's marketplaces. If you have ever wanted to know what it is actually like to sit atop the federal government's massive healthcare apparatus, and it is massive, you should very much listen to this interview. Uh, Sarah does a great job and I am very excited to present it here. Before getting to the interview, as always, a couple quick requests. Please check out our other podcast, The Weeds, which Sarah is, um, as I mentioned, my co-host on. We go much deeper into policy every week there. Please continue to share this podcast on social media, on email, put it on the Facebook. Finally, continue to email me at Ezra Klein Show at vox.com with feedback, suggestions, anything you might want to hear on the show. I read all those emails, I appreciate them greatly. So, without further ado, here is Sarah Cliff and Secretary Burwell.
1: Secretary. Barbell, thank you so much for joining us. This is our first interview out of our studio. It's exciting. We're in your office right now. Um excited to do it. Yeah. So thank you for joining us on the weeds. I know I want to ask you about the marketplaces and everything going on there, but first I might just lull you into false sense of security and start with talking about payment reform and kind of some of the stuff you all have been working on there. So one thing I've been really interested in my reporting is just all these experiments that are going on, that you all are running so many interesting demonstrations and pilots and just all this change in the healthcare system. So I was hoping you could start off by telling us a little bit about one program or pilot that's really impressed you, surprised you, like something you look at and you like are like, that's it. Like that's what the future of healthcare in the United States should look like.
0: Can I do two? Sure. Yeah. I like the idea of a place called the weeds where we can talk about the, yeah. these kinds of things that's, in depth. So I'm for. excited. So I think before talking about the specific example what's really important is to think about how these examples fit into an overarching strategy, because I think that's really important when one thinks about trying to shift Mm -hmm. the whole system to smarter, better, healthier. And so I will put the examples, but I think putting them in the context of the overarching strategic approach is quite important. And so the idea of the three main things that we need to change to get to a place where we get the consumer at the center of their care. That's the overarching objective. And to get to a place where we do that, there are three main things we believe you need to do. One is to change the payment system. And by that, when we say that, what we mean is now our system, people pay fee for service. And we believe what you need to pay is not by transaction, but for the outcome not the output but the outcome and so paying for the quality that a provider gives you versus paying for the tests they run the second thing is we believe that it's very important to actually change the way care is delivered what does that actually mean to consumers what that means is that your care is Integrated and integrated means that the dots get connected. And that means if you're be visiting your OBGYN, that they are connected to your primary care physician. If you're a diabetic and so your care is integrated in that way that information passes, that you are seen as a whole person when you see one provider, whether it's, uh, you know, a provider focused on behavioral health or other health that they're integrated fully. What does that mean? It means that. You're going to get better quality because the pieces are connected, and it also means we save money because usually it reduces tests. And the other part of changing the way care is delivered is a focus on prevention and wellness, which is important. The third thing is using data and information, which we now have so much access to in a better way for the consumer so that you have access to information and you can be more engaged, and for providers sharing that. The two examples I want to highlight, one is the idea of the bundle. And the bundled payment, and I'm going to use hip and knee. Okay. Um, and we have done proposals to do what is a mandatory. Net, you know, we are saying you will have to be paid this way, mandatory bundles in Medicare for hip and knee replacements. And why I'm so excited about Can this.
1: Can you tell, readers what is a bundle in
0: healthcare? Yes. Yes. I was kind of going to go <laughs> okay. through. So in healthcare, the bundle is the concept that you will be paid for the total episode of care. And let me be clear about what that means. Your mom's going in for her hip replacement and somebody comes over to the house. A couple weeks before her surgery, tells her, put your dishes on the counter, walks through her house and says, oh, get rid of that rug. And all the things that when your mom comes home are things that when she's in that uh, recovery period needs to be different. From that point through the point of the anesthesiologist, the actual surgery, the physical therapy for the 90 days... That is the whole episode. So start to finish, how does your mom's hip replacement go? And we pay for the hip replacement, not for the anesthesiologist giving you an anesthetic or the surgeon cutting or the physical therapist doing 12 sessions. But what we pay is we pay for it all together. And what that leads to is everybody... Working as a team to make sure that your mom's care is the best it can be because they will be paid together in that. And that's a bundled payment. And what that cuts across is both the payment number one strategy. And number two strategy, the integration of care. We have that out there. We have seen the examples, and we've seen wide price variation across the country in what people pay for hip replacements. We also have seen wide variation in the issue of quality in terms of outcomes and results. And they aren't always related to highest cost, highest quality. And so this is a very exciting way to move both of those dials. Second example? Mm -hmm. I want to give is, you said, as you indicated, we were given important authorities by the Affordable Care Act to let us try things, and try things that we would never be able to try otherwise. And the example I want to be specific about here that I'm very excited about is our diabetes prevention program that we did with the YMCA. The idea that we could move money and work with the YMCA as a provider through Medicare was something that without those authorities could have never occurred. But it was very, very important. And so the program that we're talking about is investing in diabetes prevention. And so what we did is we worked with YMCAs and providers, and they put together a program that people would participate in for a period of time for a group of pre-diabetic people. So these are people in Medicare who are on their way to diabetes. But what they were doing is trying to prevent them from getting there. And this program, over a 15-month period, the average weight loss, body weight loss was 5%, and the average savings per individual was $2,600, and so thereby preventing them. And what is so exciting about this, and this is In the Weeds, is that this particular program was scored by the actuaries. What does that mean? It means that we have never seen a preventative program be valued by the accountants in a way that it will lead to our ability to expand it. Because rightfully, if we're going to expand things in the federal government and we're going to invest in them, we have to be able to show that they add value and quality. And we haven't done that for a preventative program. That's why I'm so excited because it goes to that strategy number two on you can achieve important things in the prevention space.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think about prevention saving money because of things you're preventing down the line. But often the reason it doesn't save money is because it has to be so widespread across Yes, but when you right? have
0: $2,600 savings right. per individual, you mm-hmm. can imagine what you can do. Yeah. And you have the quality. quality. Quality outcome, which is very clear and measurable here. Right. People aren't getting diabetes Mm -hmm. and they have a lower body weight, which obviously we were focused on diabetes, Mm -hmm. but you can imagine there's other elements like COP, heart disease. Yeah that can be affected by this. This was focused only on diabetes. And so those are the only measures we use. Right.
1: So how big is that program right now? So the
0: program is completed as, uh, it was completed as a pilot. And where was it? Uh, it was all over the country. I went and visited, I kicked off and, and, uh, when we announced it here in Washington, DC, I went to the, one of the Y's here in Washington, Mm -hmm. DC that participated. One of the, uh, most outstanding whys was in Cleveland, uh, where I visited. So there were whys across the country that were participating. And why the whys were so important is because they were connecting people with the things they need to do, their trusted places. And it really is about getting to the consumer where they are, Mm -hmm. where people are. And so Medicare people enroll at WISE to do their health programs. But this was about accelerating that in a way that would afford them the opportunity to understand what it took to uh, prevent diabetes. I met a great former mail deliverer. Yeah, uh, who was just terrific and who had lost weight and his wife didn't participate in the program, but she lost weight, too, because he was doing the program <laughs> together. So she was not a participant. Yeah. But you saw what happened. And um, two sisters were in Cleveland at the I did a round table. and these sisters said, well, it's all about the accountability. Mm-hmm. I had to come in and every you know, we met as a group. And, you know, when I have to announce, how was I doing? I couldn't like not produce every week. <laughs> right. And so you. there are concepts that aren't necessarily wouldn't have come through regular health channels that became a part through of what we saw the success in the wise. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a program you want to scale. Yes. Up.
0: Yes. And we are working on how okay. we can scale it well, in this, Medicare.
1: OK, well, this actually leads into the next question I want to ask. So when you have these pilots that are really successful, I was hoping you talk a little bit more about how you grow them because one of the things I've always wondered about the healthcare system is like you see something like a Kaiser system and everyone points to it as like a great example but at the end of the day like a lot of our healthcare doesn't look like that. And I wonder if you could talk about what's when you have success in healthcare like what is what are the challenges you think about actually like with this particular program what makes it hard to replicate success in healthcare is it the people is it kind of making sure that everyone's following the same playbook as you go to a wider group or How do you think about with this particular project, what will be the challenges in making sure you deliver these results as it gets bigger?
0: So I think that program by program, there are individual challenges depending on what the program is, but the idea of broader reform or change, let's call it change to get to the kind of results. I think there are a number of critical path issues or things that can stand in the way or help you. And I think one is the issue of both providers and payers understanding that the change is coming and the change works. And that's why these models in measurable ways are important, because they show that. That's also why when we made the commitment in Medicare that 30% of all payments would be in alternative payment Mm -hmm. models and by 2016, that we would pay for value or outcome by 2016, and that by 2018, we would pay 50%. What that does is that signals, because one of the things that stands in the way is, well, should I be operating in this payment model or that payment model? And when we, the federal government, $1 in $3 in the system paying, signal that strongly. So sometimes it's people wondering... Can this succeed? And that's why models that have measures. And when the Congress gave us the authority, they were also pretty strict about how to measure it. Mm -hmm. That's why when I went into nerddom on, you know, actuarially, it is about having those measures because that's what convinces others to move Mm -hmm. on. And then knowing that's the direction we're going. That's a very important part. The other part, and it's one of the harder parts, is getting the consumer to demand it. Mm -hmm. And part of that is an informed consumer. And that's a very important part of what's changing. And you know, this is a place where the marketplace, we see a much more informed consumer at your own organization. Mm-hmm. And for those who are, you know, reading or, or listening and thinking about this, if you are in a an employer-based healthcare mm-hmm. system, and I ask you what percentage of people go in and shop when you have open enrollment... <laughs>
1: Not because we have one option,
0: <laughs> if that's your situation in your employer, yeah. but for many employers, there is. but right. so, if you do, but in the marketplace, you know the right. numbers. We yes. have a very and so getting that engaged consumer is mm-hmm. going to be another part of the long term change for the system. The other thing when you ask what's standing in the way, we see examples of things working, and it's about I think we're now at a place where we have providers, payers, and the consumer all aligned together with data and information that can help us in a way that we haven't before. And that's why I believe it's a critical time for change. Got it.
1: And so the authorities that you started this question. With. So I wanted to ask about the accountable care organization since we've mm-hmm. talked about those in depth on this show before. Mm-hmm. And that you all released some new numbers. I think it was sorry, I just printed out one article about it a few was a few weeks ago about savings. Yeah. So my understanding of the numbers you have about half making money, about half losing money. I think a pessimist could look at those numbers and, to remind our, and and we can kind of define the ACOs together, but these are basically experiments where you have these large hospital groups kind of banding together and taking more of these lump sum payments and hopefully providing health care at a lower rate and generating savings. So it seems like right now about half are making money, half are losing money. I think a pessimist could look at that and say, well, that looks like what would happen by chance if, you know, you gave these hospital systems this money. Talk me through how you think about how the ACOs are doing, what needs to happen next, and how you think about their long-term path in the healthcare system.
0: So I think the accountable care organizations, and it's important to recognize the standard of quality. Mm -hmm. So... Any, you know, in terms of how the it isn't just the single measure yes. of affordability; it's quality, and I think that's something that often gets lost in the conversation um, because it's extremely important. And that is one of the standards that I think was an important one in the law that you can't have changes, uh, negative changes in quality, and you get a right. bonus for. So you can't t- just cut to, the amount of care you provide. Yeah, save money and, that way. And, you know, there's an expectation and some of the ACOs Mm -hmm. are both cutting the cost and improving the quality. With regard to the results that we're seeing in the ACOs, I think one of the things that uh, is important and why we believe, you know, it isn't a by chance situation is when one looks at the uh, trajectory and the iteration, I think Mm -hmm. you probably know and have followed, that we have iterated and improved. And when you think about something starting out from scratch, non-existent, the idea of that kind of success rate for something that is completely new. And that's one of the things I think that's important across the board as we talk about where we are with the Affordable Care Act more broadly. Often the conversation starts as if there was something else before. <laughs> and there wasn't. Um, and in any market, if you look at any new market, if you look at uh, rates that exist already uh, in terms of how things fail or succeed, I think we believe the accountable care organizations are actually performing quite strongly. And what we also see is accountable care organizations who may have uh, talked to it, done it, mm-hmm. didn't feel it worked this time, But we've changed things based on their feedback who are coming back in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something we are seeing.
1: Are there kind of future changes as you're kind of iterating, which feels very familiar being in a website that launched two years ago where we're constantly making changes are there certain changes you see in the future, places where you've heard from ACOs and think we could do that
0: better? You know, I think the majority of them have gone through in the most recent rulemakings in terms of okay. the things that we've heard. And the second generation accountable care organizations yeah. incorporate those. And that's where we're seeing people come back in, that they want to yeah. do that. I think the other thing that are ch- important changes, there is... Um, very in the weeds now. There is a rulemaking called the implementation of a law that the Congress gave us called MACRA. And I won't go through all, but it is a very important law with regard to helping providers like doctors move to a system where they can receive payment based on outcomes instead of the single tests as we've been Mm -hmm. talking about. And as part of that, there's a proposed rule out that we're receiving lots of comment on now. But it is part of connecting to the accountable care organizations. Because one of the things, it's a very complex system, our health system. And what we're trying to do is create simplicity of rules. At the same time, we have pilots and models when we try and do rules overall. And so that's another place right now we're in the middle of that Mm rulemaking and getting comments from people so that we make sure that our approach to these accountable care organizations and our rulemakings on payments overall align. So that's a place that's right now happening.
1: Like you've mentioned, there's a lot about quality in these payment reform programs. Is there a particular quality metric that you feel like you've seen the most movement on or like what jumps out at you as a place where you feel like we're in a very different place since then since the ACA passed? Um, quality is very difficult to measure. <laughs> yes.
0: The two places that I think we are in a fundamentally different place mm-hmm. are uh, three I would list. Readmissions. Over 500,000 uh, reduction in the readmissions. And what's a readmission? It's when a person was in the hospital and they leave the hospital and they have to come back to the hospital related to that first thing. And so what you want is actually a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Again, let's get back to outcomes, not outputs. And what you want is the person come in, be treated, go, not come back because they're well. And so we've reduced that. And uh, the second one I would do is harms. Mm-hmm. And what's a harm? We've had a 17% reduction in harms in the Medicare population and the tools we have in track there. A harm is something that goes wrong in a hospital that generally shouldn't. For example, sometimes there are falls in hospitals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things will happen and, and that's going to happen. But what we want to do is we had more than we think are the number that you would just have and so we've reduced those through incentives and how we use payment tools in terms of the harms the third place in terms of quality is actually what people are getting i think the quality issue around pre-existing conditions i don't think there's anybody who doesn't know somebody who's had cancer who has asthma or who has something and like the idea that that quality exists that if you decide to change jobs Mm -hmm. You don't need to worry that you or someone in your family has a pre-existing condition and that you wouldn't get covered, that there are places that would not accept you for coverage. I think the other quality elements that are important are the preventative services that you now can get without a copay. And these are things that cut across quality and affordability. But these are very important changes that so many people don't know or realize. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit, the first time I took the children, we have an eight and a Mm six-year-old for their annual appointment, And I went in to pay. I said, what do I owe for the, you know, it's their annual checkup. And they're like, you don't. And, you know, the internalizing what it means to have that preventative care. Was that uh, when you were still at OMB? Yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) It was when I was at OMB, not at HHS. (laughs) I knew when I got to HHS. I just want to be clear.
1: So I want, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but kind of this idea of coordinated care. And one thing that always strikes me just as a consumer of healthcare, when I go to the doctor is it still seems like technology lags behind a lot there. Like often I'll go to my orthopedist and I'll fill out the same set of paper forms that I did, you know, six months ago. And it would be really insane if I went into a bank right now and they like wanted to write my information down on like a paper ledger. I would think that's like, of course, I wouldn't do that. I'd go to a different bank. And while I I do recognize that there is increased adoption of electronic medical records, it still seems like from a consumer perspective, a lot of them don't talk to each other. A lot of places aren't really using them in a patient-centric way. And I do think there are some places where they now hand you an iPad instead of a record and you don't have to fill them out again. And that is fantastic. But why do you think it's difficult for these things to get uptake in the healthcare system in the way they have in other industries
0: so one of the things is in the healthcare system i think one of the things that is a challenge is the question of does it function as a market mm-hmm. and by that i mean if i ask all the people who are listening to this cast to take a piece of paper and write down your deductible your premium and your out of pocket copays for everybody, could you please write that down?" And you will be more likely to tell me what a gallon of milk costs. (laughs) And the point being, even as consumers, we don't treat it that way. And similarly, if you go and you interview a hospital and ask them, what is the cost of an X to your hospital? Mm-hmm. And so we have not been in a place where there is understanding or transparency and the market often drives change. And so that's one thing. I think the other thing with the interoperability, that is one of the most fundamental issues. And that is a technology issue and the companies that are creating the softwares need to be, to be honest, mm-hmm. forced. Yeah. To create communication between. And that's a place where we're focusing deeply because you're right. You do have a mixed experience. Most people do. Last week, Root Canal signed with my finger. Mm -hmm. As you described, it was all iPad and, you know, it was all uh, driven on electronic and, and did it have gone you know, did it differently in another appointment that I did, you know, and throughout. And so people are experiencing. So it's moving through. But one of the critical path issues is creating the ability for the different systems to talk and then making sure that providers are rewarded. Mm -hmm. Because if you're paid by transaction versus speed and quality, that makes a difference. And that's why the payment reforms are going to interact with the data use.
1: But even if, if you have the interoperability, one of the challenges seems to be to me, like for a hospital, it's not necessarily good for business to make it easier for your customers to go somewhere else that there's an advantage to them in having more of a closed system. Or how do you see... Do hospitals want to be interoperable? I guess is my question.
0: I think most do because most providers want to serve the customer, you know, the, the patient that they're serving Mm -hmm. well. And so I think many do. And, and I think there is an evolution going on. And I, you know, in terms of the kind of transparency that you were talking about, I would highlight the University of Utah Mm -hmm. Medical Center, uh, and Dr. Vivian Lee and the leadership she's shown there, where they're to the point of transparency where they put the ratings of their doctors. You as a a consumer, a patient, rate the doctor, and it's put up on the website because they believe that they want to compete based on the quality of service that they provide. And that's when you're going to get to a market that is working.
1: Right. I know you're from West Virginia, and that's a state that is dealing with a large opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, I was there doing some reporting for a story a few weeks ago. Where were you? I was in... Charleston. I was in Williamson, West Virginia, right on the Kentucky border, um, which is a small town. That um, the fire chief there told me they a small town of twenty eight hundred, where they're averaging fifty overdoses a month. Which unfortunately sounds like it's not that stunning of a statistic from this area, but still is a quite stunning public health problem. Did you go to any of the drugstores, the did, pharmacies? I did not go to
0: a pharmacy. My cousin runs Hurley Drug there. Oh, really? In in Williamson? Yes. Wow. That's yes. a tiny town. That must be the only drugstore there. Um, on the West Virginia side. Ah, okay. On the Kentucky side, there are others too. Got it. But right. yes, no, my mother is <laughs> okay, from Okay, so you know this
1: area. I know Williamson, so one, West Virginia <laughs> <laughs> quite well. So one thing I wanted to ask you is why is the opioid crisis so bad in West Virginia? Are there certain things that are different about that area of the country that let the epidemic get worse there? I think
0: a combination of things. And I think now the epidemic is acute everywhere. True, And I think we were really a canary in a coal mine Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense of how bad it was sooner. And I think a number of things have contributed uh, in the state. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, economics, general overall health and well-being and access to health care. Mm-hmm. You know, on the upside and something that is happening in my home state is, you know, we have one of the largest reductions in healthcare and uninsured mm-hmm. in the nation. And so people who were struggling for years and years and years now have health care but they didn't during all that time. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in a world where you don't treat things and then you have chronic pain because you don't. Uh, and that combined with, you know, in our country in 2012, there were 250 million prescriptions for opioids. There's something not right uh, with that. And so when you combine challenges with prescribers not having tools that they needed or information that they needed and that many prescriptions going, you're going to get a very, very acute problem. And it Mm -hmm. is a problem, as you reflect, it's everywhere now in the country, but it has been happening in my community for many, many years Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, my knowledge of opioid deaths You know, Mm -hmm. goes back ten years. I mean, I can think of people I know that have died ten years ago. Wow! I would say at this point it may even be fifteen, and so this has been a problem for an extended period of time. And now I think the nation is focused because it has spread beyond rural America. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So you're in this position right now where you run three major and different healthcare systems: Medicare, Medicaid, the health insurance. Marketplaces—they're covering. I'm doing the med, You probably know this. Like 150 or so million people, or between the three of them, I would say
0: about 70 uh, in Medicaid, about 50 in Medicare. Dual eligibles are probably so you got to like take out a right, little bit okay. for there. So we go to 120. I would take it down to about 110, uh, and then um, then you need to add back in the marketplace. So okay. about 120. Okay,
1: 120. so yeah, I estimate a little probably. bit. Probably. So. I want to ask like it,
0: relative to the right. 150. You know, I think it, okay. to to size it about 150 million in uh, that people that are getting insurance through their employers. Right.
1: So how are they different to run on your end because they all take different approaches to providing health insurance or kind of what are the different skills? You need to be running all these different health insurance programs. So I think one of the things
0: that is important, and this is an important part of getting to a changed system, is that it really shouldn't matter how it's getting paid for. The health care that you get should meet the conditions and qualities Mm -hmm. that we described earlier. And so in running the three different things, that is our sort of unifying theme. When one thinks about Medicaid, what is unique is the role of the state partner. Mm-hmm. And so that means that how we work and, and do that, because we have a state partner that's paying and implementing in many cases, one has to focus very deeply on the relationship and working with the state to deliver in a quality way. Uh, In Medicare, there are elements to it, you know, whether it's Medicare Advantage, Mm -hmm. Part D, changes in elements that are making that not be just a singular unified system that we run, but engaging with the private sector. And across, we started engaging with the private sector in Medicare, Mm -hmm. in states, certain states are doing it in Medicaid, and then the marketplace itself is purely the private sector And, you know, we are a means, a distribution mechanism, a connecting mechanism. And that is very different because we, that part, we need to be very clear. We run and need to run in conjunction with the issuers and the insurers that are providing that financing Mm -hmm. and coverage.
1: So that's a new, kind of a new relationship for the government. Like you're saying, it's not how Mm -hmm. the other programs have been run. What are the challenges of essentially... Giving, And I think we're seeing some of them play out in the marketplace right now where you're giving up a lot of not giving up, but working in partnership with these insurers who have a lot of control over the fate of the Affordable Care Act, that it ultimately rests on their decisions to sell, how much they want to charge. How do you manage that or how do you think about the role of these issuers and handing over a lot of the keys to this insurance expansion. You uh, have been covering for a while.
0: So I think, you know, when I came to HHS and we were going through the first open enrollment that I said, the single thing that will guide us, what is the overarching Mm -hmm. principle that's going to guide this open enrollment? And I've said it for the next one. And we'll say it again (laughs) as we get ready, as we're getting ready for this one, is putting the consumer at the center. Because by putting the consumer at the center, we are acting in the interest of the consumer and thereby the interest of the issuer. Mm-hmm. And so, in terms of how to think about it, when you sit in, in the marketplaces, is keep your eye on the ball of the issuer, uh, the consumer, mm-hmm. and you will thereby be following what you need to do with the issuers. And in terms of the role of the issuers, we have a system where that I think many people miss about the Affordable Care Act, where this is private insurance. That's the way the system is set up. It's built on the back of our existing system in the United States of employer-based care and private insurers. And so that working relationship is an important one. And are we as a government used to it? It's funny because when I sometimes, people I think forget, there's the Department of Commerce. And what Secretary Pritzker does often in terms of working with businesses to achieve economic growth in the United States, it's similar to what I'm doing, which is working with a particular part of the market to provide a thing, you know, a particular service, Mm -hmm. which is insurance coverage. And so while it is new and different for HHS, it is a function, but you are right. We had to do it in a very different way. And that's been a part of the bumps Mm -hmm. in terms of the learning. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, this does not get covered or thought about necessarily by many people in the way you just described mm-hmm. it. If we were talking about a startup market, so any new market in terms of its nation stages and its go through, you know, the natural trajectory in a private market of ins and outs in early mm-hmm. stages of, of new companies, you know, uh, that is a natural happening, but because we are the government, how people view it is different.
1: Yeah, is it a more difficult relationship, like to work to rely so heavily on the private insurers? And I guess you know one example I'd bring up is this letter that Aetna sent to the Department of Justice mentioning its exchange participation that it would not participate in the exchanges if its merger were denied. That seems like something you wouldn't deal with if it was, you know, just the government administering insurance or it seems like the idea of working with these private carriers so closely, it leads to some difficult situations like that.
0: You know, I see working with the the carriers or working with governors or working with Congress, they all touch different parts of making something work. Mm -hmm. And this, in terms of the system and the role, it's just a a player that is different Mm -hmm. Uh, and we do have to work with private companies in terms of Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do it in small spaces, but we don't do it in such entirety as we do. Uh, and there's certainly been learning. Uh, and it's like anything where you have to build the relationships. You go back and forth, you listen, uh, and you figure out how uh, to go forward. What I think is important and why I return to the consumer is that we all keep our eye on the same core objective, which is the consumer. And similarly, my relationships and how I work with Congress is that focus on access, you've heard me millions of times, access, affordability and quality, because that's the starting point of agreement. There, we know, are many disagreements in this space. (laughs) But once we get ourselves agreed on core objectives, that's a starting point that's very important as one is going to have relationships and true partnerships.
1: So there's something I've been writing out a little bit as I think about the future of mar- of the marketplaces. Kind of the term I've come up with it is, I feel like you're seeing a bit of a Medicaidization of the marketplaces, where a lot of the companies like Centene or Molina that have been successful are coming out of the Medicaid space. They're used to serving this population. They're offering typically narrow network plans that are more affordable, and consumers have flocked to them because you know these are the premiums that they can fit into their budget. And I'm curious kind of how you how you look at the players who are expanding in the market, the players who are leaving the market, and what that suggests to you about what the marketplace will look like in the future. Do you think it's fair to say that some of the plans being offered there and some of the plans that are being successful there are these Medicaid companies that are taking their knowledge from this program and kind of bringing it into the marketplace?
0: So... I would divide that question into two pieces. One is, who is the consumer that's being served, and then who is serving the consumer, the supply side and the demand side? With regard to the consumer being served, I think we're in early stages uh, in terms of who we know and what we know. And I think it's important to actually know and understand that there are actually very distinct parts of that in the marketplace. And what percentages will be in the end, we don't know, because I think we're still in early stages. There is a low in working low-income consumer, which I think is the one you're kind of referring to. There is a consumer like me. Mm-hmm. So I will need health insurance January 21st. And hopefully I will need it as a transition to another job. Yes. <laughs> um, and during that period of time, my family and I will need that. And it's an important part of our healthcare coverage. And so there a group of people very important people. And the um flexibility and engine of the U.S. economy, it's one of the things mm-hmm. that keeps... This will help us from being rigid mm-hmm. in the way that some European economies have found themselves to have more rigidity. This is an important part of our overall economic health and flexibility. The third category that I think is extremely important to remember is those that are self-employed. And so I have cousins you know that are maybe highly entrepreneurial but i have a number of cousins who are in the marketplace because they run their own businesses and so they themselves and their limited number of employees are in the marketplace and so there are three different categories so i think as one thinks about who's in the marketplace thinking about those buckets and the size of those buckets i don't think we know yet mm-hmm. the second thing is who's serving and so as i think about who's serving sentina and molina and the, they are very mm-hmm. successful players but the florida blue Mm-hmm. Is a very successful player. And so I'm not sure. I think it is less about serving a particular population versus knowledge of this new business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something we are spending a lot of time gathering people in, those that are successful, to talk about it. And there are some key elements that we know. One is people who are pro- focusing on their provider networks and, you know, moving toward this thing that we were talking about before in terms of better delivery and coordination of care. Those are people that are doing better. It's true. Those people that have experience in terms of working to create networks that serve in that way. And so I think as much as it is about Medicaid, it's about understanding what the marketplace of the future looks like serving those three populations.
1: I have one healthcare and one non-healthcare question left. So one is about the individual mandate. When I do my reporting, I hear a lot of people saying they don't think it's strong enough, that the marketplace is smaller than the Congressional Budget Office expected. And one reason might be that the mandate is not strong enough. And if you look at European countries like um, Switzerland, they have incredibly strong mandates where they will garnish your wages if you don't buy insurance. Um, and obviously ours is much short of that. So I want to ask you kind of how you think about the individual mandate. Is it strong enough as it is? Would it require some changes from Congress? Or how do you think that works into getting people into the system?
0: I think right now um, what we do know, and you saw last year, is... When we talk about the penalty, that led to greater enrollment, especially among the young. And so the use of the penalty is something I think we're still learning. And so we saw that as something that drives people. You probably know that's why we've made the change, that you know, as part of our big push for open enrollment, the IRS will be reaching out to people uh, at a time when they can take action. So for many people, they found out and understood about the penalty in April when they're paying their taxes. And you can't act then because it's not open enrollment. So making sure that the penalty in its current form is being used in the ways and understood in ways, both in terms of what the penalty is and how you solve the problem, and that there's affordable care. So I think right now we're in early stages of understanding the use of the tool that we have, but we need to analyze that.
1: Last question. Before this, you were at OMB um, Office of Management and Budget. You now manage this very sprawling, large, I think the largest agency in the federal government. I am a first time manager. Um, what what do you feel like is your best tip about management? Kind of what have you learned about getting people to work together successfully, possibly that I could take back with me. <laughs>
0: it's worth what you pay for it.
1: <laughs> Um, in terms of, of that, I think
0: for me, there are three things that I think are important and they're important to articulate to your teams and have them know and, and understand. And the first is interesting because we spent a lot of time on it is focusing on outcomes. And focusing on what you want to achieve. So setting the clear goals mm-hmm. for teams and the organization. So that's number one. Number two is prioritization. Because that is such an important tool for you as a manager, but it's also such an important tool for your teams uh, in terms of it relates to getting the outcomes you want. uh And the third, and this one, it took me when I was younger, I I didn't have it on the list. And so this is one that has been an evolutionary one that in the end is so important. And that's relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's relationship in your organization and relationships with those around your organization outside. And so it's the relationships and valuing that and understanding that. Because in most organizations, it's all about the people. And it's all about helping those people get to their highest level of performance. And so understanding, having some understanding and respect for those individuals leads to a place where they want to perform better. You're better able to understand how you can support them in achieving their best. So those are the three things that for me, it's that focus on the outcome. It's that uh, making sure you prioritize and relationship.
1: All right. I will. I'll take those back with me and let you know how it goes. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation and very much appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you to Sarah for subbing in for me this week. This has been another episode of The Ezra Klein Show, a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producers, A.C. Valdez and Efebio Shapiro. Uh, We will see you next week.